This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am such a fan of Isabel Wilkerson's. I'm going to try and keep it under control. You know, if you listen to the show enough, you know when I get really excited, I get really excited. Warmth of Other Suns, though, is a masterwork of American history, and it is a book for everyone to read. It covers the great migration of African-Americans from the American South to California and the North and the Midwest. Yep. This book is so gorgeous and important. And, and Isabel does this very cool thing where she takes the stories of three individuals and sort of tells the bigger picture through them. But Cast is the book that we're really going to focus on today. And Cast actually starts with the warmth of other suns. So I'm going to say thank you for joining us on the show, but also can you let us know how all of this came together? Well, first of all, I'm so delighted to be here with you because, as you know, uh, Cast came out during the middle of the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic, and we didn't get a chance to experience the book out in the world. I mean, it took, it was a very long time before I even saw the book out in the wild, one might say. I mean, I, I just never saw it. You know, COVID is a big part of how this came into the world. But it all started with The Warmth of the Suns. I mean, The Warmth of the Suns, you know, my firstborn, which was an ode in a way to anyone who ever left all that they'd known for a place that they'd never seen for a place far, far away, away from all that they'd known. And of course, this was this under-recognized story within the borders of our own country. Mm -hmm. And in order to understand why 6 million people would pick up and leave all that they'd known for a place that they'd never seen in hopes that life might be better, was to try to understand what were the circumstances that they were in. What was the world like that they were living in in the, in the South at that time? We call it Jim Crow, but that doesn't really capture what it really was. And so the more that I looked into it, I realized that they were living in a world that was so restricted that it was actually against the law for a Black person and a white person to merely play checkers together in Birmingham. You go right. to jail if right. you were caught playing checkers with a person of a different race. It was so restrictive that Actually, the word of God, the Bible itself was was segregated in the Jim Crow South. And so those circumstances were so restrictive and they also were redolent of caste, redolent of an ancient hierarchy of uh, value assigned to people based upon where they were, you know, where they were situated, where their group was situated in the hierarchy, they had no control over it. There were... Uh, academics, there were scholars who went into the Jim Crow South during the height of the Jim Crow era, and they emerged from their research using the language of caste. And so that's how I came to be aware of the idea of caste. And uh, I then it, it sort of opened up an entire portal of understanding the world that people who are part of the Great Migration, really any African-American, or really any American, anybody in the Jim Crow South had to live under the restrictions of what we consider, what we call Jim Crow, which was actually a form of a caste system, not identical to other caste right. systems, but had parallel structures and parallel restrictions on people. And that was what, what, how I got into the idea of caste. I had no awareness of that before I started mm -hmm. working on the warmth of other suns. But once I started working on that and researching it, and I became aware of how others who'd studied the Jim Crow South while it was uh, at its peak of power, they were using that language. And I came to understand how it was a way of understanding what these people were, were fleeing. 
And caste is not synonymous with race. It's no. not synonymous with class. It encompasses those things. Caste is a structure. And you have a really fantastic metaphor that I'm not the only person to latch <laughs> on to. But this idea of caste being an old house. Yes. The idea of our having inherited this old house known as the United States of America, our country, is one that helps us to uh, see our country differently. It allows mm -hmm. us to see that we live in a structure mm -hmm. that we did not ourselves build, but we've inherited it. You know, when you inherit an old house, you take possession of an old house, you may then get that report from a building inspector who says it's got some uneven pillars and joists and beams. It's got some frayed wiring. It's got some, uh, some corroded pipes and plumbing. And then once you take possession of that, you did not do that. You did not create those, uh, those structural problems. But once you take possession of that house, it's your responsibility. First, discover what those things are, fix those things, and then uh, strengthen it so that succeeding generations can uh, have a sturdier, stronger, and more enduring building house to live in. And that's, that's how this allows us to see our country without blame and without shame, which can be counterproductive, but rather with the sense of everyone has inherited this. We did not build it, but it is our responsibility to fix it. And it's caretaking. I'm one of the people who also, when I first heard the word cast, yeah. and even having read Warmth of Other Sons and really been absorbed mm -hmm. in the narrative because you have this wonderful tension between what happens next and here, you know, there's so much great. Yeah things to say about Warren through other signs, but <laughs> caste is a phrase that I always associated with the Indian subcontinent. Yes. It really yeah. is not something that I thought about in the context of the United States. And yeah. actually, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made a trip to India, and you write about this in caste, yeah. where someone says to him, oh no, you're an untouchable in America. Yeah. And he's, this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying, I'm sorry, what? Can yeah. we talk about that story for a second? I think it's a really important point to make, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who said, huh, cast in America. Yeah. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah. And he said the same thing. He made a visit to India in the winter of 1959 because he'd been so inspired by the nonviolent protest philosophy of, of Mohandas Gandhi. So he wanted to go there. He was treated as a visiting dignitary upon arrival. Uh, he had dinner with the prime minister and people uh, that he met actually were keenly aware of the movement that he was leading back in the United States. So he wanted to visit uh, with the people who were then known as untouchables. So he, had to, he made a trip to the southern part of the country. And there he visited a school that was populated by students. So the principal was so excited to uh, introduce him in, to the students that he gathered the students around and he said, young people, I wish to introduce you to a fellow untouchable from the United States of America. And when Dr. King heard that language applied to him, he first bristled at it. He was peeved because he didn't see himself in that way. He didn't see himself in the language of untouchability. Uh, he didn't see caste as being relevant uh, at, at that, from the way he was thinking about uh, the country, both countries. And uh, then he thought about it. He thought about what was at that moment, 20 million uh, African-Americans, 20 million Black people who were at that very moment being held in a fixed place. They were held outside the body politic. They were excluded from being able to vote, from being mm -hmm. able to go to school, certain schools, from living in certain neighborhoods, excluded as to the kind of work that they could do, essentially excluded in every sphere of, of life and that their efforts to be recognized as citizens, they were being met with tremendous hostility 
resentment and violence. And so he, he thought to himself and he said, I am an untouchable. And, and every black person in the United States is an untouchable. So he came to the realization of, of what you were just saying before, that most of us would not ever connect uh, these two concepts, that these two countries and this, this phenomenon to us. But those who have studied, particularly studied the Jim Crow South and then studied India have found ways to see the similarities. They are not the same but can see the intersections, see the, the parallels, the points of intersection between uh, multiple hierarchical systems outside of our own. And one of the places you take us to actually is colonial era Virginia, because that's really where caste begins. That's really yeah. where you see this separation of black and white in a way. Yes where black labor is used to harvest tobacco and raise tobacco, among other things. And yeah. certainly, I'm not sure, you know, the way that the colonial era is presented to us as we learn American history in school, that's not, slavery seems sort of confined to this one piece of, Ameri of the American South and no one really thinks about the starting point. And we yeah. really do have to go back to Virginia in 1691, they were also saying, well, if you're black and white, you cannot marry each other. So they were exactly. they were really yeah. at the forefront of all of this. They were. Um, yeah. But can we talk about that colonial legacy? And and because it's it's going to bring us into the era that most of us think about when we think. About yeah, well, they were building a new country. Mm -hmm. uh, they were building a new country and they, they needed labor in order to do that. And uh, they first, as we know, we have to first acknowledge. So it started with a massive, mm -hmm. massive theft of land, sought to enslave the indigenous people here, the, the, the native people here, and then imported people from uh, another continent in massive, massive numbers uh, to build this, this new country out of wilderness. And in so doing, they began to create what we now know as race. Race is, an, is not an ancient concept in the way that caste is. Race is a relatively mm -hmm. new concept that was, uh, what was used to take physical characteristics and to assign a value to those characteristics and then use those characteristics to, uh, to uh, assign people a ranking in a society that was just emerging uh, that would ultimately become the United States. They were um, making adjustments as they went along. It didn't start out immediately. It was something that evolved mm -hmm. over time. Right. And it, whenever they had to make a decision about what was going to happen, who was going to be able to do what, who would have rights or no rights, not even over their own bodies, they used delineating human beings on the basis of what they look like into mm -hmm. what we now know or call race. And in doing so, they used that as a metric in the same ways that other uh, hierarchical systems could use different metrics. They could use metrics of religion. They could use a metric of, of language. They could use any metric that they chose to. And in this case, the, the colonists, the early colonists chose to use what people look like to determine mm -hmm. what their ranking would be in this country and accorded rights and privileges on the basis of that. And you describe caste in the book as the arbitrary, and I think arbitrary is a really super key word in this case, but the yes. arbitrary construction of human division. Yeah. I mean, caste didn't exist until someone said, well, we need to make sure that our people sit yes. on top of someone else. Yes. And that's not, I mean, unfortunately, it probably is more of human nature than it should be, but yeah. the arbitrary designation. 
And yet people have really internalized caste. We see people making sort of unconscious decisions based on caste. They're policing their fellow human beings because they read a situation based on what they see in another person and arbitrary. I can't say this enough. It's all made up. Yes. I think we can't say that enough as, as you are indicating, because we have come to accept this as our, we've been, you know, there are generations upon generations. This is 400 years in the making. And we've come to accept this as the received wisdom of the ages, when in fact, it's fairly new. It is made up idea. It's taking human beings, taking, dividing the species up on the basis of what they look like, assigning a value to it, and then saying, these people should be doing this. They should be in this space. They should be, they're the ones who should be doing this in our society, and others should be doing something mm-hmm. else in our society, all on the basis of what we, people look like. And you, we all know this, putting sunlight, exposing the problem to sunlight helps. And that's all we're trying to do in this conversation is just point out all of these ideas that we have internalized. I mean, caste is an, you describe it as an American invention and American innovation, and we're pretty good at inventing some things. This is one thing we probably could have left behind and we didn't. And so we need to work with what's in front of us. And there are ways I mean, if you think about it, you describe geographic origin as a passport to the dominant caste. Yes. Can we talk about that for a second? Because it's going to lead us into a larger piece of it. But we're talking about accidents of birth. Yes, absolutely. And that's really the, um, you know, the tragedy of it is that these are accidents of birth. No one chooses to be born to the dominant groups or to the subordinated groups. I mean, no one, we have no say in, in, in how we come into this world. And yet we have to find ways to navigate a pre-existing hierarchy that we had nothing to do with ourselves, but which in order to survive, you have to figure out what you're going to do. And the idea of, of caste to me really comes to the fore when you think about the creation of what the dominant caste would be. The dominant caste was going to be and any, any hierarchy will have to create who's going to be, who qualifies to be in that dominant caste. And what they did was they, they brought people together who otherwise would not have had as much, very much in common or did not perceive themselves as having that much in common before arriving here. So that people who were from, say, Bulgaria um, might not have seen themselves as having very much in common with people who were from Poland or from Germany or from Ireland. They were from completely different cultures, different language, different traditions, different history. But upon arriving here in this country, this new country that was emerging, they were then a new category that had not existed or had no reason to exist, which would be white people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was a constructed group that was assigned to the very top of the hierarchy. And uh, they were a, a creation, an arbitrary creation that was positioning an entire group for dominance in our Mm -hmm. country. And then they also did the same thing with those at the very bottom, which Mm -hmm. would be assigned the very bottom, which would be the many, many, many diverse countries, ethnicities that were in this very, very large continent known as Africa and combining them. Again, these are also people who spoke different languages, had different traditions, different ethnicities, combining and coming together into a new category known as Black, 
one of the the quotes gets cited a lot from the book is what this playwright, a Nigerian playwright that I happened to have met in in London, and we were mm-hmm. talking about the Jim Crow and the Great Migration, which they hadn't known anything about. And um, this person said, "You know, you know that there are no black people in Africa, right?" And when you hear that, I mean, you have to sit with that. Just think of <laughs> there's an entire continent filled right. with black people. But what what she was saying was that the people who are in this massive, massive continent filled with people who are a range of complexions that are along the spectrum of brown and black, that they don't have to see themselves in that way. And they don't see themselves in that way until they come to a place such as the United States or the UK. And then suddenly they are entering a category that it had no meaning for them necessarily back home or would have not needed to have that meaning and then assigned to a different group. And then, so that's the structure of the extreme poles within our society. And then come the people in the middle. And that creates the stratification that was affirmed by the laws. So one of the things that I explore, as you may recall in the book, were the the definitions of who could be a citizen of this country. And that was a very fraught space that was replicating and enforcing the hierarchy of caste in our country. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. where you can understand what, you know, where is the ranking? The ranking comes through looking at the legislation as to who could be uh, permitted to be a citizen. And there were, there were many, many lawsuits uh, in the early 20th century in which people who were in the middle were trying to establish where they fit in this hierarchy. And that's the reason why the idea of caste is a useful one to understand what we have inherited as Americans, because this is a long, long history that um, we're still just now unpacking. We're living with the consequences of the established hierarchy that goes back for for centuries. You talk about the eight pillars of caste. (laughs) Yeah. And we're not going to go through every... (laughs) one of the eight. It is a large part of the book, but yeah. at the same time, there I think there are moments that are going to resonate, even with a casual listener who may not have read the book in hard day, because obviously the paperback is coming out as, we're, as yes. we're talking. Yeah. But you do in this book, in cast, you use some of your own stories to illuminate the points that you're making, because what better way to bring someone into the story than humanize the story? Yes. But you also use other folks as well. There's a woman called Miss Hale yes. in this book, and I love her, and I love, I her, love her dad, and I love the story of her name, and I want to use her in juxtaposition. There's a story from Florida that we're going to come to. There, there are two sides of cast, and Miss Hale's dad, he has the wherewithal to deal with it in a certain way, and there's another dad who unfortunately was put in a different situation, but yes. they are two of the best illustrations of cast I can think of, and they're very powerful images, but yeah. let's start with the good one. Let's start with Miss Hale, because she's yes. awesome. <laughs> she is. Well, her father was a, was a teenager during the March on Selma, and he actually participated. He was growing up in, in Alabama. When he saw what was going on, he just thought to himself, you know, when I when I get when I grow up or can have um, children of my own, if I have a daughter, I'm going to name her something so that no one can disrespect her. One of the longstanding traditions or customs was that women who were white or what I would what I call the dominate dominant caste were accorded uh, the honorific of Mrs. and Miss. That was reserved for the dominant group and the dominant group alone. 
and that the people in the subordinated group, um, African-Americans in the, in the Jim Crow South, they were not to be spoken of with, in that way. They were never to be spoken of with the use of Miss or Mrs. Uh, they were called by their first name. Might, they might be called auntie. There were lots of, de- uh, or boy, there were a lot of uh, uh, diminishing, subjugating kinds of language that was applied to them. So he, he bristled at that when he saw his um, elegant and proud mother and grandmother being called by their first name everywhere they went. So he decided, uh, he, got, he got married, he had a, a daughter, and he decided that he was going to name that daughter Miss, so that no one could ever call her by any name other than that. That was her name. Miss was her name. I love it so much. I love that story. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's so many examples. I mean, certainly, if you read enough fiction, there are plenty of examples where people have said, you know, I'm making my own world, I'm making my own way. But yeah. then there's also the reality that comes with dehumanization. And I very specifically yeah. used humanizing earlier because dehumanization is a tenant of everything that's terrible in the world. It really yes, is. That if absolutely. you decide that a human being standing next to you is not in fact a human being, and dehumanization is actually a process. Yes. It is policy. It is structural like cast and you mention a young man called william james howard yeah and he makes the mistake of sending a card to a colleague in a department store that they're working in in florida yeah. with yeah. horrible consequences yes horrible, horrible consequences. consequences and this is not ancient history this was mm-hmm. uh in the mid-1940s so there are people alive today who would have been alive at the time that this happened so he was a 15-year-old uh, boy, the only child of his parents. He was seen at that time as being, the, it was their pride and joy, of course, but also the one that they were putting a lot of hopes and dreams into. He was very bright. He had gotten this job, which was considered a job that was unusual one, one that was uh, seen as, a, as really stepping up uh, in the world for uh, an African-American boy at that time. He wanted to do so well uh, in the job. He was so happy to have it. Um, that he, this was a, uh, a job that he had after school. He wanted, it was, uh, the holidays were coming up and he decided he wanted to send uh, a note and a card, Christmas card to everybody, all of his coworkers, everybody he worked with. And so he did that, but he wrote um, a special card to one of his coworkers who, who was uh, a young girl his age. Um, she happened to be from what I would call the dominant cast, meaning she was, she was white because he was 15, he had a little crush on her. He wrote something that used the term sweetheart. He wanted her to be a sweetheart. He gave her that card. She showed it to her father. Her father saw it. And his, that card uh, represented uh, a breach of one of the central pillars of any caste system. And it's called endogamy. Scholars call it endogamy. That essentially just means that marriage can only occur within the group that one has been born to, and that one cannot marry or have romantic involvement with anyone from a group outside of that. And it's especially enforced against those who are in the subordinated group in any hierarchy. And so he broke a, unwittingly broke a, a central pillar of caste. And so doing um, the, the father of this girl and some of the father's friends uh, then went to uh, this boy's father took him from his job 
And this shows you the structural enforcement of this is that the, the uh, supervisor of the father relinquished the father to these men. And then the, the man went and got the, the boy, the, the man's uh, son, who had sent this card to the girl. And they took uh, both of them, the father and the son, to uh, uh, a bluff along the river. And they um, tied up the boy and uh, they uh, forced him to his knees and they held a gun to, to the, the father as well, um, meaning that he could not do anything. They forced the boy to jump to his death and the father had to watch his only child killed before his very eyes for this breach of a pillar of caste known as endogamy or in our, in our uh, history, we, it's called miscegenation. The reason I ask you too to tell that story is because one of the cultures you look at in the context of caste is um, the Nazis in Germany. And I use that story as the transition too, because the Nazis built their programs and their legislation off of Jim Crow. They watched what we were doing in the United States. And then even they had an issue with this idea of one drop that yep. if, you are, if you have one drop of blood, you are, yep. you are black. And even the Nazis thought that was a bit extreme. And I think if the Nazis think you're a bit extreme, there's some self-examination that yes. might want to happen. I, I yeah. just, it's a thought. I would uh, say. So here we are in this brutal American situation. And the Nazis are even saying, well, we do want to use you as a model because you're yeah. doing what we would like to do. But even we're having a problem with this. What was that like for you when you were doing that research? You spent quite a lot of time in Germany. And because you are who you are, you talk to everyone you can talk to. It's a lot to process. Yeah. Yeah, this was such a far-ranging, deep dive uh, and immersion in aspects of humanity or aspects of our species that most of us would rather not have to think about. And yet we, because we're living with it, we might as well know. It's better to know than to not know. I was stunned to discover the depths and the breadth of connection between our society and theirs. So it turned out that the, you know, that the Nazis had been paying close attention to the ways in which the United States had managed to subjugate the people at the bottom, uh, African-Americans at the bottom, and the other ways in which they had controlled uh, marriage, meaning the, the endogamy and miscegenation, the ways in which each state had different ways of determining who could marry whom, expanding beyond African-Americans and white people, but getting to indigenous people at certain places they had language having to do with Asian-Americans and with other people. So it's actually we're studying and inspired by American eugenicists who had found ways to arbitrarily determine the presumed superiority of individual of groups based upon random characteristics uh, you know that went so far as to measure skull size all of this just uh, horrid unsavory attempts to measure the superiority of some groups over others 
And the Germans were quite inspired by that. So they were studying what American eugenicists were doing. Some of the work of the American eugenicists were became huge bestsellers in Germany. Hitler, in particular, was enamored of several of the American eugenicists. So there was this connection. They actually, the Nazis actually sent people to the United States to study the Jim Crow laws to try to understand it. To tell you the truth, I mean, they were floored by the extent and the specificity of the laws. For example, the tax rolls in some of the states were maintained by race. They just, they were fascinated by all of that. But as you stated, they felt that the one drop rule was too far for them as they were determining what would ultimately become the Nuremberg laws. That's quite significant because they were looking for ways to define what race was. And they studied the United States because the United States had more older and more readily defined uh, jurisprudence as to who fit what when it comes to race. And the one drop rule was too far for them. They did not accept that. All of this comes together in your book, Cast, in a way that makes it very, very clear that a caste system benefits no one in the yeah. system. It does not benefit the dominant caste. It does not, do- it certainly doesn't benefit the people no. on the bottom, but it absolutely also does not benefit the people in the middle. And there are so many people within these systems who get very invested in maintaining yes. them. And this is the biggest part of the problem for all of us. Yes. None of us benefit in the long run from divisions that are artificial to begin with. <laughs> yes. completely made up. They are the bad kinds of fairy tales that we have decided we're going to use as measurements and actual guidelines, I suppose, might be the word I'm looking for. And yet, page after page, person after person. And again, you use yourself as an example in in a couple of cases. That DEA story was harrowing. You got followed by DEA agents in the Detroit Metro airport. And all I could think is, they choose you. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> no. Yeah. But again, they decide that you, as a member of the lowest caste, are somehow, you were a reporter with the New York Times, and at that point, yeah. you were a bureau chief, and I believe you yeah. had had your Pulitzer at that point. Or did the Pulitzer come shortly after the DEA? All it I know is, <laughs> okay, <laughs> roughly in the same moment, yeah, exactly. but they're chasing you down the hallway, asking you intrusive questions because they have decided based on their own internal biases that somehow you are the problem. Absolutely. And I think that a- another example that from my uh, reporting days at the Times lays bare how anybody can be harmed in this, even if they are putatively the beneficiaries of this caste system. And that is where I went and I had this appointment to uh, the interview someone. And uh, I showed up for the interview. Actually, it was a little early. And uh, he, had, he was running late. And I was told to wait for him. And there was really no one, no one else in the establishment. It was very quiet. And uh, when this, the door opens and this man comes in uh, and his assistant says, yeah, that's, who, that's him. That's who you're supposed to be talking to. He, I go over to him, uh, as I'm told to. And, uh, and he waves me away. He says, oh, I don't have time to talk with you right now. I'm getting ready for a very important interview. And I, I said, well, I, I think that, I think the interview's with me. I think that, and he says, well, how do I know that? I mean, how, how do I know that it's with you? And I said, and I said well, I called you and you know, it's 4.30. We were supposed to have a point at 4.30. And he says, he said, well, uh, do you have a card? I, I need to have some proof that you're who you say you are. 
And I said, well, I actually don't have any cards. It's the end of the day. And he said, well, I'll need to see some ID. I'll I'll need to see some ID to know that you're... Now, remember that time is passing. He had arrived late and there was no one else coming in. I was the only person there. One would think that it would be pretty obvious that you have an appointment. There's someone here who says they have an appointment with you and you're not believing them because of how you've been programmed to see people who look like me is really what I would say with that. And uh, I said, well, I shouldn't have to show you my ID, but you know, here's my driver's license. And he looks at it and he says, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it. I said, I, I happen not to, but you know, that here we are, we're, we've been, we're wasting time. I've got my notebook. I've got my pen. I'm ready to, I've got, I called you. You may remember I called you. We're wasting time. I mean, we should be, we should be interviewing now. And he says, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because the New York Times will be here any minute. And I need to get ready for them. So I left. The point of that is that this is someone who wanted so badly to be interviewed that he asked the person who he did not accept as the person he was going to be interviewed with to leave so that the person that he expected to see to interview him could come. But of course, no one came. Um, Then I walked out the door and that was it. This is a subtle way that if you were to multiply this times many, many times, hundreds, if not thousands, if not you know, even more than that, times a day, where there is some misunderstanding, miscue, misattribution, um, assumptions made that actually hurt the very people who want, very, who want so desperately to get what they think they want, but they are standing in their own way because of what I would call caste. Right. Clinging to that. Right. It was not about hating me. Mm-mm. It was about assumptions he had made mm-hmm. about who should be doing what in our society, which is a hallmark of caste. I mean, one of the reasons I like uh, the, the idea of caste, I got, got so caught up in I mean, being a writer, you're caught up in the words and the language. And, you know, caste had all kinds, you know, you do this thing, there was a whole time in the process of working on this, where I was thinking about the word, the word caste, I mean, ways that it's used, you know, it's used when you talk about you know, uh, what the fitting that you put on an arm to keep the uh, broken bones in place, a cast, meaning to keep you in a fixed place. Right. I thought about the cast in a play where everyone has a different role. There's someone stage left and stage right and someone in the foreground and the background and everyone has their role and everyone has their lines to speak. All of these things help us to understand the ways in which we have been as, you know, as, a, as members of the society in some ways, programmed to see that which we have inherited from the early days mm-hmm. of our country, and that um, that still intrudes if we're not aware of it. And we have an opportunity to be aware and to try and make changes. And this isn't, yeah. you know, unfortunately, you don't get to snap your fingers no. and make the discomfort go away. That's not what we're saying at all. We're just saying it's an opportunity for all of us to do better. All of us. Yeah. All of us. And I think that gets lost in the conversation. There's so much hyperbole and there's so much, I mean, you've got people who are openly racist denying that they're racist and it's like, yeah. Huh. yeah. okay, so when, when the meaning of the truth gets a little fuzzy, we're in uncharted territory. But yeah. what we do know is that you are in fact a little hopeful about the future, which I really appreciate because you, between these two books, you've spent what, more than 25 years researching (laughs) some really tough bits of our country and our society and our place in the world, and yet you are still hopeful. And I find this really interesting and very helpful to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I wouldn't have written the book if I were not hopeful. Right. I mean, the act of writing this book was a prayer for our country. Mm-hmm. It's um, making the case that there's another way of looking more deeply under the surface of our country, um, a way of seeing it that can enlighten us, a way of seeing it that can help us understand a lot of things that otherwise don't make sense. This whole idea of people saying, you know, individuals are voting against their own interests. Why are they voting against their own interests? Why are they doing this? Well, you know, if you look at it from the prism of caste, then you would be an an established hierarchy that we've all inherited and that Mm -hmm. many people might be deeply invested in maintaining. When you look at it from that perspective, then what may seem to be voting against one's own interest could actually be voting for the interest that matters most to them. Right. Meaning voting to maintain whatever perceived ranking, status, uh, advantages that come historically from the way that the country is structured. And that's why it actually is a structural problem. We all need to work on ourselves and we all have agency in how we move forward. We are not the ones who built the uneven pillars and joys and beams. No one alive is responsible for having created enslavement, the institution of slavery. And yet we are responsible for what we can do in our era, in our time, in our world, among the people that we can influence in the ways that we can and with our children and, and, and the rest of the other people that are in our sphere of influence. That is where our responsibility is. And that, that is where we can actually have, make an impact far more than I think we give ourselves credit for. While we are at the same time needing to make major, major changes, structural changes in the, in the many, many subcategories of our country, whether it's you know, criminal justice, education, housing, so many of the different uh, challenges that we face within this larger structure that we live in. And the reason that I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, I am optimistic, but only to the degree that I have to be optimistic about our species. Mm-hmm. I've come to speak of ourselves not as people, certainly not in terms of the divisive uh, language that we often will use. I mean, even I think that even calling ourselves by a particular generation is is, is, can be divisive. Mm-hmm. It's a way of saying mm-hmm. us versus them. And anything that's us versus them and othering others mean that we're not working together to deal with and to confront our massive, massive problems that we face as a species. I've started to use the word species so mm-hmm. much more. I find the hopefulness, and I have no choice but to be hopeful, right. because we are at um, a turning point. We're at an inflection point in our country where in 20 years, it's expected that um, that the historic majority in this country will no longer be the majority in this country. Right. And that is one of the reasons why I think we're seeing so much rupture, so mm-hmm. much uh, primordial, almost existential uh, urgency to maintaining control in the ways that we're seeing it. The 2020 census showed that for the first time in our country's history, the historic majority, uh, in other, other words, uh, white Americans, that the numbers fell for the first time in our country's history. All of this combines to create uh, what some people might see as an existential crisis, but others could be could could see this as as an opportunity, an opportunity to uh, embrace that which is already in progress, to to build up and to make the most of all of our people, of all of our talent, of all of the brilliance of of all of the members of our citizenry, and to get it right, to create uh, the uh, multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy 
that had been the dream of those who uh, were working for during the first Reconstruction, who fought in the civil rights era, that this would be the chance, if we can get it right, to create a world that hasn't existed up to now, but as the innovators that the United States considers itself to be, then this would be a chance to get it right. I'm going to stay hopeful because what other choice is there to be honest? Exactly, I, whatever. I really don't feel like being on the floor in the fetal position. That seems counterproductive. I know. But did cast lead you to your next book? The way Warmth of Other Suns led you to cast. Did you find something while you were working on cast and you said, oh, this could be the next thing? Or are you just taking a moment? Because the world has been a very wild place for several yeah. years now. and. There's, there's yeah. a lot. There's well, I, well, I am taking a moment. I mean, first of all, the, the book is in a YA version. And so Which is great. You know, work related to that. It's coming out in paperback. So mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm getting the chance to go out into the world in a way that I couldn't with the hardcover. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't go out into the world. There were no book signings. There were, right. you know, no big events. I mean, I, it was what we're doing now is the, the extent of what could ever be possible in that era. So that's what I'm gearing up for. And, and it, it'll, it, last year was the first year that I started to tentatively go out into the world in a way that was unimaginable in 2020. And, and I found it so, so affirming to be able to see, you know, fans, to see people mm -hmm. who read the book, to face to face. It was just beautiful. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Books are really amazing things. Yeah. They're really amazing. And the people who create them are pretty great too. <laughs> <laughs> but really, folks, if you haven't read Warmth of Other Suns, if you haven't read Cast, really sit down because the reading experience for both of these books, like I cannot stress this enough, narrative nonfiction is an art. It really is an art. And Isabel Wilkerson does amazing things. And yeah, sometimes you're reading really, really hard descriptions of actual things that happened, things that we did to each other. And I say we using, I'm going to borrow species for a second, that we as a yeah. species can do to fellow members of our species. But yeah. at the same time, the more information you have, the better choices you can make. And I'm just hoping that more people come now that cast is out in paperback, now that there's a young readers version, which I think is true. I love this idea of adapting older books for a younger audience, because yeah. some kids some kids want cast as it exists in the world right now, and some kids don't. Yeah. And let's yeah. give both of those kids exactly. <laughs> the version exactly. that they're going to connect to. I mean, that's, that's the thing that matters, because if you turn a kid into a reader, then the whole world is in front of them, and it's so exactly. great. Yeah. Isabel Wilkerson, I cannot thank you enough for the work oh, you do. I really, yeah. I, yeah, I'm a fan. What can I say? I mean, that's the beauty of being a bookseller. You get to be a fan. Thank you get you. to be a fan and tell people to read lots of big, important, smart <laughs> things that, you know, Maybe you don't sit, read it in a single sitting, but um, yeah. the end result is really, it's so great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Cast is out in paperback. Cast is out in a young adult version. The hardcover is <laughs> still available. Warmth of yes. Other Suns is out. Oh, and I have to say, I've also listened to both Cast and Warmth in audio. Amazing. They're both really terrific. <laughs> yeah, she is amazing. Absolutely and amazing. Honestly, sometimes with the really bad parts, it's nice to have a very calm person reading yes really rough information and it's just okay she's reading this out loud and she's very calm and i can process because sometimes when i'm reading i really get in there and just my eyes get really big but thank you thank you yeah. again 
Thank we're you. so glad you do the work that you do. Thanks Thank again, you Isabel. So much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. We're back with another TBR Top Off, and we're here to recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Cast. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hi, Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Leewood, Kansas. Wonderful. Well, we've got a couple of great books to talk about today. Jamie, you want to go ahead and jump in? Yeah, absolutely. So I read Cast uh, when it came out couple of years ago, it feels like at this point. Um, so I'm excited to see it in stores and paperbacks. In that book, one of the things that Isabel Wilkerson talks about that I thought was particularly of interest was that the greatest threat to a caste system is not lower caste failure, but lower caste success. And she says it goes against the acknowledged script. And when the lower caste is successful, it can trigger this or does trigger this primeval and sometimes violent um, backlash from the upper caste. Um, And one of the examples that sort of came to mind when I read that um, was one of the largest examples of racial violence in U.S. history. And that was um, when Black Americans were succeeding and were moving up the ladder. And um, this was in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. And it's the Tulsa Race Massacre, and it's where Black Americans were dealt a really devastating and violent blow um, after um, really forming a thriving community inside um, the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. This was such a thriving community and was so successful um, that it was known to many people as the Black Wall Street. There's a fantastic award-winning young adult nonfiction book about this called uh, Blackbirds in the Sky, the story and legacy of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And it's by Brandy Colbert. It's a thorough account of this just terrible event in our history. And it shines a spotlight on white violence that erupts when the caste structure is threatened. The Greenwood District was home to many wealthy African-Americans, many successful African-American-owned businesses. And during Memorial Day weekend, after this long stretch of escalating tension that Colbert really covers thoroughly in the book, um, she talks about what was happening at the time um, that caused tempers to flare and, and kind of boil over during this Memorial Day weekend when mobs of white men um, destroyed homes and businesses throughout the district. Um, they did $1.5 million, uh, $1921, Uh, in real estate uh, damage. 800 people went to the hospital. Dozens and dozens to hundreds of people um, were killed. We're not 100% sure how many people were killed. Um, The state had to form a commission about 20 years ago to look into it, to try to find out, um, because this event had been erased from all state history, and the devastation was minimized um, from the start by authorities who recovering for the mob. Remarkably, because of all that, none of us learned about this event in school. Even the Tulsa schools um, didn't talk about it. And so her book is really a very necessary and sober um, and unflinching education that connects this event and the cover-up to the broader conversation that we're having about systemic racism in America. 
Uh, so again, the title of the book is Blackbirds in the Sky, the Story and the Legacy of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Highly recommend. Excellent choice. No big surprise. I chose a title that I think maybe f- might feel a little bit softer, but I think is also uh, fairly crucial. And it's a book, uh, Let's Talk About Hard Things by Anna Sale. Uh, you may know Sale from her podcast, uh, Death, Sex, and Money, where she brings on guests and they talk about topics in a very thorough way that these topics may not be the most comfortable thing to talk about in polite conversation. So the book is broken up into five pieces, which covers sex, death, money, of course, but also family and identity. And she talks about how each of these pieces can be uncomfortable to talk about for various reasons, but also how not talking about them can really lead to isolation and a disconnect uh, from your tribe and your culture. Uh, She promotes listening as one of the most crucial tools as well as an end goal of understanding without pressure. She makes a safe place to have conversations that need to be had. She uses personal stories as well as interviews with uh, various guests and uh, various public figures to illustrate how to have these kinds of conversations. I think with communication moving and changing so rapidly, this is an excellent way to infuse your communication with curiosity with compassion, with empathy, and hopefully an effective way to make yourself a part of the world a little bit more. So please check out Let's Talk About Hard Things by Anna Sale. Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.